This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, although ordinarily this is a podcast about all sorts of topics under the sun that relates to wealth and how it intersects with the law. In this month of July 2022, we're focusing on basic estate planning. This is the estate planning boot camp series. So welcome if that's what you were intending to find, and if not, welcome anyways, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and we are continuing our estate planning boot camp series. Uh, one of the important documents in any estate plan is what is called a financial power of attorney. Sometimes you'll see it called a durable power of attorney or a durable general power of attorney. doesn't really matter what you call it. It's essentially a power of attorney that relates to somebody's finances. And to help me with that, my friend Jenna Rubin is with me. Jenna, thanks for joining me. Of course. Thanks for having me. These are, I think, strange instruments because ultimately they rely on, they rely on this archaic old English law on agency that nobody really needs to understand. They just need to understand the, the basic functions. So to help us all out, what is a financial power of attorney or a power of attorney for finances? So simply put, a durable power of attorney for finances is a document where you, you the principal, appoint someone, your agent, to act on your behalf for basically all legal and, I guess, financial matters. So um, they can be broad and they can be for everything. They can be limited. So I can give Brent a power of attorney if I'm leaving the country to sell my house only. So for that specific transaction. Um, but typically in the estate planning world, we're doing broader powers of attorney where you're giving somebody the right to act on your behalf for all legal, all financial matters. Um, and the idea there is it's really meant I think for our clients to cover when they're, they're not able to act. Um, but, and I don't know about you guys, but in Florida, they're, they're valid immediately upon signing. So they're a document where you're giving someone power over every kind of, every financial aspect of your life immediately upon signing it. So it's a lot of power. It's a lot of responsibility you're giving somebody. Uh, you really got to trust them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an important document. Very important. And you mentioned a couple of things. W- one is, uh, we do have, uh, powers of attorney that are effective immediately. We also have powers of attorney that are effective only if you, the principal, are not able to act a so-called springing power of attorney that springs into existence at that right. moment. And then you hope that it's clear what that trigger is if it's a springing power of attorney. But yeah, they basically come in one of those two varieties. Either they they apply immediately or they only apply in the future. You, you mentioned a couple of different roles there, though. One is the principal mm-hmm. and one is the agent. So could an agent, for example, have powers that the principal themselves does not have? No. So the idea here is you're really giving somebody all of your own personal um, roles. So anything you can do, this person can do. This isn't something broader. They're not acting as your trustee. They're they're not acting as your executor. So that's an important distinction that I think most clients can get a little confused about because we talk about so many different roles. So they're not they can't act for you when you're gone. This is truly just you during your life. They can act as if they were you. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that you tell them they can do it. True. Yes. Yeah. So depending on where you live, the form of the document might look a little different. Um, some can be more of a catch-all, like you can do everything I can do and, and be a little bit more vague. Other states require you to specifically enumerate, you can make a loan, you can buy a house, you can sue in court and, and articulate each of those. Um, in Florida, we have a kind of, I think it's a u- more unique provision where 
some things can be can be vague and can just be signed off on. And then we have what we call the estate planning superpowers. I think that's just the term we throw around where we've deemed these powers to be so special that we want you to, when you're signing the durable power of attorney, to actually initial those. So those are like to create a trust, make large gifts, change rights of survivorship, things like that. We're, we're, we're actually having you really articulate that and specifically sign off on that. So it depends on the instrument can be different on how you articulate it and what powers you're giving the person. Mm-hmm. There's actually a couple of interesting nuggets there. I want to draw out. So one is uh, you mentioned the this agent. They're not your trustee and they're not your executor. And actually, that gets a bit to the scope of their power. You know, the, you said the principal can give the agent the authority that the principal themselves has. Well, the principal is not a trustee. Being a trustee is sort of a, a special legal position. So you can't just give somebody your authority as the trustee. Um, that would be a completely different topic. So you're and, I, and I find a lot of clients like that that comes up often and mm-hmm. people often want to, you know, I'm leaving the country and I, you know, I'm trustee of this trust and can I have somebody else act? And unfortunately, this is not something you can do. And this document does not do that. And it's not no. always clear to clients that that's the case. Right. This is not the way it's done. So you're really focusing on non-trust personal assets mm-hmm. of all varieties and of all characterizations. So Correct. joint assets, single owned assets, business interests, bank accounts, all kinds of different assets. The other thing that um, I think is is a little bit of a curiosity is something that you were pointing out, which is in some states, they actually have by legislation, uh, legislatively blessed forms of these powers of, of, of attorney. And so in those states, you use the legislatively blessed form. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that's the way it is in, in Florida. Do I have that right? Sort of. So so for those superpowers, yes, mm-hmm. there, there's that list. You're going to want to be very careful and articulate it the way the statute does. Mm-hmm. But as far as the rest of the document goes, um, it's not a form and everyone sort of does their own. So like one thing we decided to do at our firm that I don't see everywhere else, it's a little bit more of a conservative approach. I think that some of those estate planning superpowers can sort of be subsumed by some of the other things you're doing. So maybe you're selling property, but maybe it has something to do with making a gift to a trust. And so I I actually have everybody initial each power that they're giving as opposed Mm -hmm. to just the five superpowers so that there's no argument later that maybe there was some overlap there and they should have done it. Um, And I also think that maybe makes everybody who's signing a power of attorney sit and think a little bit more. Um, you know, they sit in the office and they initial everything. But, you know, when you have to initial each one separately, it does make you realize these are separate things and each of them can be very important in their own. Yeah, right. that's 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 really interesting. You guys have a bit of a mix of, that's weird. Sort of statutory things. And the <laughs> well, you know, we're. We're a bit of the Wild West. We don't have any statutory. Uh, we have There's requirements for making a, a power of attorney effective. I want to talk about that in just a second. But we don't have any, like, statutory form. Like, this is the power of attorney that yeah. you use. And I've experienced other states where they very much have a very specific statutory form. That's the one you use. I think there's a benefit to having the statutory form, particularly mm-hmm. as it relates to the banks. Um I find where where we have on a day to day basis, the most trouble I have with powers of attorney is a bank maybe not accepting our form or someone else's form. Mm -hmm. So if there were to be a statutory form, maybe that would cause them to be a little bit more, you know, uh, compliant. 
but I don't know. Maybe they're just banks and they would never be. Well, that could be true. Um, well, okay, let me ask you, I want to come back to that in just a second, but let me okay. ask you about what is it that you have to do to make one of these powers of attorney effective, say in Florida, I'll give you the Arizona thing mm-hmm. and maybe a little compare and contrast so people can wrap their minds around the fact that just because you do it one way in one state, mm-hmm. it might not be the same in another state. Sure. We've got um, a requirement for two witnesses and a notary and then the initialing on those superpowers. Um, and our statute does have language about, you know, respecting a properly executed power of attorney done in another state to the extent that's done in practice. You know, depends on the institution. Yeah. And so we're a little bit different. We mm-hmm. we require uh, one witness and that witness cannot be related to you by blood, and they cannot be named in the document as an agent. Okay. So you couldn't have your own agent witness right. the document. California is different. I think California is like Florida, where they require two witnesses. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes, because we have so many clients that are in California or have property in California, we'll actually just have two witnesses, even sure. though the Arizona requirement is one, because we know they're going to jet off to California during the summer when it's blazing hot here. Yeah. So just just so, again, just to emphasize for anybody listening where this is a surprise, you just have to know every state is a little bit different. And at, in powers of attorney, yes, most states have a law similar to the one that you're explaining where they say, yeah, well, if it was valid where you signed it, we'll accept it. But whether that actually is true in practice is mm-hmm. a bigger question mark. So usually you, if you move to a new state, you probably need to do new power of attorney documents because the, the rules for a valid document there may be different from where you just move from. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you talk about that then a little bit on the limit, the limitations. You're talking about the banks, but these sort of limitations of these documents. Uh-huh. Just, I, I mean, I don't know that there's anything specific because it relates to each bank so so differently and really every banker specifically. So, you know, I, I might give a power of attorney to somebody. It's validly executed. It says you can make a loan on my behalf and they take it to the bank and the bank says, no, this isn't our form. You have to do our form. And they print out some form that they have um, on the Internet, that you know, their system that they want you to sign. And oftentimes I'll have clients call me from the bank and I have to explain to the bank why this is legal and they have to run it through their legal department. It's actually just a very frustrating and kind of silly hurdle that we have to overcome, but we have to do it often because the banks just have their own compliance issues. We see it also um, in the healthcare context where the hospitals have their own forms, um, which can be frustrating as well. So it's not unique to banks, but yeah, we, we do see that come up more often than I'd like. Yeah, it's similar for us. Um, these these documents tend to be as effective as the person you're giving them will allow. Yeah. And sometimes it means the effectiveness is zero, and sometimes the effectiveness is, okay, after a little bit of cajoling, we'll go along. Uh, in, in our experience, banks and financial institutions and title companies mm-hmm. are the most finicky. They're, they're the least comfortable with powers of attorney. Not to right. bore anybody, but basically in most states, there aren't. In a lot of states, there aren't necessarily statutory protections for the person that's accepting the document in the same way that there are protections for somebody dealing with, say, a trustee or an executor of an estate, or it's maybe not as clear in my experience working with banks is that that's where they start to get uneasy. So just know that there are some limitations on you. You do the document. It's beautiful, of course, because Jenna did it. It's perfect. (laughs) It glistens in the sun. And then my clients call me and this doesn't work. It doesn't do what you said it was going to do. Yeah. It happens all the time. Yeah, don't blame Jenna. It's perfect. It's just the person you're giving it to doesn't want to make it effective. Okay, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was this idea of 
durable? Yeah. Because uh, I get the question from clients from time to time. Of, what does that mean? What is durable? Yeah. So uh, from what I understand, because it was actually right when I started practicing, the law changed in Florida. So in Florida, we used to have the idea of a springing power of attorney, which was you sign the document now, but it doesn't come into – it has no legal effect until – you meet some sort of definition of incapacity, whether it's your physician, say you're incapacitated, there's a definition in the document, whatever it is, it springs into effect and becomes effective. And I find that that's what most people think the document is, even though the law has been changed for quite some time. But it makes sense. That's the only reason. Why would I give somebody full authority over all of my finances unless I need them to have authority over my finance? But the law changed and ours are durable now. They all are. We don't have a choice to do springing or durable. So ours become valid on the moment of signing. And that's a big deal. And I, I caution my clients, you know, I'm less concerned when it's a husband and wife, much more concerned when it's a friend, somebody outside the family, you know, someone they don't know as well. This is a lot of power you're giving someone, and that power is effective immediately. And assuming the bank accepts your document, this person can just go to the bank, start writing checks as if they were you, and do a lot of things. There are, on the back end, there are ways to hold someone liable for breaches of trust as a fiduciary, but in the moment, they have full power to act as you do. Um, one thing some people in Florida do is they'll, the attorney will hold the document in escrow with an instruction letter from the client not to release it unless they are incapacitated. So they, we sort of make them springing ourselves. Um, but that puts a lot of liability on the, the lawyer to be available when they call, to make the determination of when to release it, all that kind of stuff. So what I, I often tell the clients to do, and it's not a perfect solution, I say, you know, take it home, put it in your drawer. Maybe tell the person you're naming that it's there, but don't necessarily give it to them. It's a tough balance because um, it's it sure it's effective that moment and it's a lot of power. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's effective that moment. And when it's durable, it means it's going to continue to be effective yep. even when you're out of it. You know, you're incapacitated and, and you can't do anything, which I think is a little bit contrary to this idea of, like you were you were saying earlier, like the the principal gives the agent the authority to do the things that the principal could do for themselves. Well, when you're sick in your hospital bed and you can't do anything, you're unconscious. Obviously, if that rule played out to the letter, the agent wouldn't be able to do anything either. So these things are durable in the sense that you sign it; it's effective immediately if it's a non-springing one, like it sounds like all the Florida ones are. And then it continues on that way indefinitely, regardless of yeah. what's happening to you, the principal in your life. So, yeah, you got to think about it very carefully. Maybe you hold it back. Maybe you don't give it to somebody until like the moment requires. Maybe you do yeah. this whole escrow thing like you're talking about, Jenna. It's a it's amazing things that um, people don't think about. But the power that you're giving somebody is tremendous. Mm -hmm. And these, these documents have that uh, have that ability, but they're very they're they're important. They're a really key component to any properly done estate plan. I think so, and I think especially um, to avoid guardianship, where mm -hmm. the court is going to get involved. You know, should you become you know incapacitated and someone needs to manage your financial affairs, if you haven't done one of these documents, your family's going to have to go to the court to ask for that authority. And guardianships can be extremely intrusive, expensive. It, it's it, it's a real cost saver, and, and it's a benefit to the client to have this document. Yeah, absolutely agree. All right, Jenna. Well, thank you so much. That was very helpful. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, pleasure as usual. Nice to see you. Likewise. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com. 
and follow me on social media at loveandlaw. i'll see you there.